Well, welcome to another edition of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. My name is Mark Powell, and I have with me today the special guest, the Liberal Senator for Tasmania, John O'Dunium. John O, welcome. G'day, Mark. Good to be with you. Mate, it's great to have you with us. Congratulations on being elected again. That's a great victory. And I noticed that the Tasmanian, well, the Liberal vote in Tasmania has increased, bucked the trend nationally. It, it definitely has. And look, it's bittersweet. Obviously, nationally, I was part of a government that lost the last election and we had a bit of a walloping in places like Western Australia and Queensland. As you say, in Tasmania, we did pick up uh, in terms of the votes in Bass, Braddon and indeed Lyons. And there's a range of reasons behind that. But that was the sweet part. The bitter part, of course, is going into opposition, which is a tough period of time for any political party, but it's an important part of the cycle and this is how democracy works. You can't be in government forever. That's when bad things happen. Yeah, correct. Now, this is AP's Profiles in Christian Living. Um, You yourself are a Christian. Can you tell us how you first came to faith? Sure. Um, And... Look, and I will be very open and honest with anyone listening to this uh, about my walk um, with Christ and how I came to be a Christian. And uh, I I grew up on the northwest coast of Tasmania. My family aren't practising Christians, though they did enrol me in a Catholic school. And so I suppose uh, for that primary and secondary education Mm. um, and pre-tertiary, I did have the basics of Christian teaching through the Catholic education that I had. So I knew there was a God. Um, I knew something about this guy called Jesus who died on a cross. I knew a lot about the Catholic rituals and the approach that the Catholic Church take to praying to the saints and the importance they place on the Virgin Mother Mary and all of that. But I didn't really have an understanding of what being a Christian was about. I didn't really understand that uh, uh, Jesus died for our sins and so therefore we were good with God kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, And I remember when I first started coming to church, and I'll come to how I became a Christian shortly, but um, when I first started attending Cornerstone here in Hobart, you know, well, 20 years ago now, um, talking to someone and saying, oh, you know, I I just get worried, you know, like if I've sinned and I haven't sought forgiveness on Sunday, what happens if I get hit by a bus between, you know, on Tuesday and I sinned on the Monday? I could go to hell. And I remember this bloke saying, hey, this is not the Catholic Church, mate. That's not how it works. That's wrong. And so I came down to Hobart um, having had that education and that approach, you know, fundamentally believing there was a God but didn't know much about it, didn't understand the Bible. I, you know, the ins and outs of all of it was in effect just a, an ethereal concept but one that I knew to be true somehow. Uh, and I lived in a residential college here, um, you know, and those places aren't a great environment for anyone of faith or anyone generally, frankly, Um, but it was through that that I met my wife Uh, Mm. um, and it was through her that I became a Christian. She said, well, if you want to get to know me better, aka be my boyfriend, (laughs) you have to start coming to church. And I thought, oh, (laughs) Sunday mornings are so good to sleep in and waste time and whatever else. But I thought I'd give it a crack (laughs) and... um, so she took me along to church. We went to Bible studies and uh, from there on in, of course, um, my understanding and acceptance of Jesus Christ as my saviour, having died for my sins and what it means to be a Christian grew from there. So that's in a very small nutshell how mm-hmm. I became a Christian uh, proper yeah. um, and, and attempt to adhere to 
um, the faith. Okay, so you studied law. You became a Christian. You studied law at the University of Tasmania here in Hobart. What made you decide to go into politics? Yeah, it's madness, isn't it, right? Um, look, uh, I, I did law because I wasn't sure what else I wanted to do um, and so that was six years of study, which I enjoyed, but I never intended to practice law. And uh, law is a degree that helps you um, to, uh, to think well, to critically analyse, to research. So it gave me the basics in, in my mind. Um, but Look, I've always been interested in politics um, and thought it would be a great way to contribute. Um, and the thing about politics is it's a bit like a vortex. Um, you start on the outside and you slowly sort of get sucked into the middle. And I joined the Liberal Party because of my upbringing. My parents were small business people and, you know, I'm sure you've heard a million conservative or liberal politicians talk about the um, Keating yeah. era when interest rates were, you know, yeah. edging towards 20% and, you know, small I business. I grew up in that era. Well, yeah. Mm. Um, thankfully, I was very young at that time, but I do remember the impact it had on mum and dad mm. uh, and having conversations with mum in the supermarket where she was saying, well, you know, we may not be able to afford all the groceries this week because of the nature of the economy. And at a very young age, that left an impression with me. And so... As a result, um, you know, after all those dinner table conversations over the ensuing decade or more, um, I believed that the Liberal Party was the one that I aligned most closely with. And so I got to Hobart uh, and joined the Liberal Party down here. Now, political parties are predominantly made up of very old people. Mm. Um, you, you'd find you go to any electoral branch meeting of any political party and you'll find that the majority of members are well north of 60. And they saw this young bloke walk in and they thought, oh, fresh blood, we'll take him. <laughs> and so my involvement with the party mm. became more and more intense. I then landed a job with a senator here in Hobart by the name of Paul Calvert, who was a great bloke um, and is still kicking around on the eastern shore of Hobart. He's a, a tremendous community member. Um, and uh, then one job after another. So it was never... If you could, if I could say, not never intentional or planned, but it just mm. sort of led one thing to another. Ultimately, well, my last professional involvement with politics before being elected was as the deputy chief of staff to the then Tasmanian opposition leader, Will Hodgman, and worked with him through into government. And then I got elected in the double dissolution election of 2016. And the reason I decided to run um, was because here I had been for the last 15 years providing advice to other people. They'd make decisions that I wouldn't ordinarily always agree with. I thought that could mm. have been done better or we should have gone down that path instead of that one. And I think in Australia, more than anywhere else in the world, it's no good sitting on the sidelines having a whinge. You can have a crack. Mm -hmm. And I did. And um, as it turns out, I was elected in that double dissolution. So my election. wife wanted me to ask you this question. Oh. Right. Because, <laughs> and she's a very smart woman. But she's just said practically on a day-to-day basis. What does a senator do? Mm. Well, it's, it, in a sense, like any job, um, you can do as much or as little as you want. Um, and that then comes back to bite you if you do very little. Mm. You know, kind of like ministry in a way. Correct. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you're a lazy lawyer and you don't do your research and prepare for yeah. court, your clients aren't going to rehire you. They probably won't even pay the bill. Um, and so, look, it's a case of uh, there's a huge amount of discretion as a senator, but 
The basic proposition, I think, of anyone who seeks public office, be it local, state, federal, is to be a problem solver. Um, the community seek you to represent them, to notionally make Australia, Tasmania, your community a better place. And you put forward ideas and make promises at elections and you go forth and then seek to implement those. Mm. But on a day-to-day -day basis, people will turn up at your office or ring or email, uh, meet you at one of your street stalls or when you're door knocking mm. um, and say, oh, I need help with my cousin getting them out from Mexico. They've been waiting two years for a visa. So you can help that person with the immigration department and the processes that they go through. Um, you know, same in a taxation or Centrelink context, helping them with uh, navigating government services or on the macro level, someone's got an idea for a business. Well, you know, you try and link that great idea up with um, overcoming regulatory hurdles or some support in terms of grant or financing that the government might be able to provide. So that's sort of the basic underlying um, uh, what is the role of a senator. Um, of course, that's the local there is the Canberra going to Parliament and representing your community, reviewing the legislation that comes through the Parliament and making sure it accords with what you as a Tasmanian, in my case, mm. believe to be right, what will deliver the best outcome for the state. Um, and my principle on that is, well, if it doesn't work for Tassie, I won't vote for it. Even if it was in the case of the last government that I was a part of, in, you know, there were arrangements around the GST on the table and I made it very clear in party room and then publicly that I would cross the floor and vote against my own party if this didn't stack up for Tasmania. In the end, thankfully, they were able to come to an arrangement which was good for our state. So going up there, debating legislation, participating in committees to mm. examine legislation and yep. other issues is the other part of it. But here on the ground, it is about getting out and about. No one comes to find you. You have to go out and talk to them. Yeah, uh, street stalls, uh, door knocking, um, business visits. That's how you meet people. That's how you understand what's important to them because if you're not doing that level of engagement, you're not much good up in Canberra. Yeah, I know Australians love to knock the tall poppy, particularly in politics. We, we just seem to, it's almost an art form where we bash politicians and our leaders. And I could imagine it's incredibly bruising for you personally but also on your family. How have you responded to that challenge um, personally as a Christian uh, in the, uh, serving Christ in the public mm. square? Um, look, it, it's true to say that um, in Australia there is this element of you see someone do well, whatever sphere, there is that, you know, who do they think they are? You know, that business person who's driving a nice car or lives in a nice house. There, There is that attitude there which... Um, a lot of people remark upon and I wish we could find a way to change it, but it is sort of that, it, it's, it's something we probably do need to consider addressing. But in terms of being a Christian and dealing with that is difficult because it cuts across a number of parts of your life. There's the personal, which includes the faith, and there's the professional, which then has an impact on the personal. And I'll never forget when I first put my hand up in 2016 and mm. I did this Facebook video and said, this is who I am and this is what I want to do for Tasmania. It was pretty benign, fairly vanilla. There were no super political statements. I wasn't attacking my opponents. It was purely about how mm. I, as a young Tasmanian, 33 years of age at the time, wanted to run for parliament to get elected to make Tassie a better place and here's some of the things I think we could do to make it a better place. And up it went onto Facebook and I just remember the vitriol uh, targeted at me. Yeah. And that was my first foray into 
putting my head above the parapet in that sense. And I remember thinking, you know, there were people saying, oh, you, and I'll, I'll delete mm. the expletives, mm. but, you know, you can go and get stuffed and mm. no one wants you, you piece of mm. whatever. And I was thinking, who are these people? Who, like why, what have I done? I, it, it really confronted me. And that was just me putting up a benign video. Imagine if I'd have said something controversial. Yeah. Or said I was a Christian, goodness me, that I would have been blown out of the town square. But I learned that uh, one on social media, they are they hiding behind your keyboard and your computer screen with this anonymity, mm. where you don't see the reaction yeah. you get. Yeah, empowers people. And and what's more, you don't know these people. They don't know me. Mm. They don't base what they're saying and typing into the comments section on any knowledge of me or what mm. I stand for. They're just having a a bit of a, a slag off at me and it's disappointing. But as a Christian, um, what I have come to learn is, and this is something that's evolved over probably 50 years, I expect, um, based on what I've read and sort of how I've discussed this issue with other Christian leaders, that there is a real desire to bring down Christians and, and this is where having a strong faith and an, a, a very strong support network in your own church community but amongst Christian friends, yeah, uh, it, it's so important to have all of that in place um, because the minute you say you're a Christian, um, you really are subject to another level of attack. And just in the last election, I remember standing on a, a pre-poll booth where people can come and vote early and a volunteer for another political party, which I won't name, because uh, I, I took it upon myself to go and introduce myself to all the other volunteers. Mm. Here they were, participants in this great democratic process and, yes, we have a difference of opinion but we're all vying for what we believe to be right and that is to seek people to support us so we can go forth and do what we believe to be right uh, in terms of policies and running government. And I went to this volunteer and introduced myself and I could tell already that it was going to be one of those negative confrontations. Yep. He, he, you know, part way, not far into the conversation, he said, are you one of those God-botherers? I said, well, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, yeah, why? And, uh, oh, you know, you're, you're, you want to take over the parliament and take over the country and force people to believe what you believe? And I said, oh, hang on a minute. I, I, no, this is a free country where we allow people to do, live, believe, associate however they want. That's the beauty of our country. Of course, as a Christian, I'd love others to be Christian, but no. And then it sort of started getting more and more heated um, uh, making attacks about my former pastor, Campbell Markham, and some of his writings. And when I pressed for detail on what it was his concerns were around those writings, he couldn't give me any detail. But it's just this general um, approach that in the broader secular community, um, we've allowed Christians to be defined by the left. The left have defined what Christianity is okay. and so therefore when you in public life or even in private life, mm. you're at dinner with friends, say you're a Christian, suddenly, um, you know, the, the left have appropriated the outcomes of, for example, the Royal Commission into um, sexual abuse in the institutions that were run uh, and said, oh, well, that's the Christian church, you know, Catholic, Anglican, mm. Presbyterian, you're all to blame. And so if you're a Christian, therefore you support what happened is... Mm the extreme version of what I've seen happen with people. And so this uh, secular definition of what it means to be a Christian does mm. make it harder to pop your head up okay, and say. Okay, so can I, 
I'll just interrupt you there to ask you about the Religious Freedom Bill and your reflections on that. Because at the last election, the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said he'd bring this uh, before the parliament. It got defeated, well, it got strongly opposed by the Labor Party and the Greens, but probably the key moment was when five members of the Liberal Party crossed the floor, Mm. four of whom have now lost their seats. The only one remaining, I think, is Bridget Archer. What's your reflections on that, both the importance of that bill? Because Mm. it seems to me from everything you've described, I agree with you, um, we see even the vitriol against Scott Morrison Mm. and his faith. I would think that if we wanted an example of vilification, you only have to look at how people have responded to the prime, the former prime minister. What's your reflections on that whole mm. um, part or attempt to pass that legislation before the parliament? So that was an incredibly difficult time, um, and I, it probably was amongst the top points in time that I was most disappointed in what was happening in the parliament. Um, and frankly, we fumbled the ball on okay. delivering on a promise to the Australian people. Um, and I remember from the very beginning working with colleagues like Erica Betts, Amanda Stoker, Ed Selger, Andrew Hastie and others to ensure that um, we did the right thing in drafting an appropriate religious discrimination protection framework um, right at the beginning of the term, soon after the election. And I remember a a large group of us gathered in the Prime Minister's office to talk about what we believed needed to be included and how we needed to ensure there were appropriate protections. Now, um, the the fact is that, sadly, we left it to the 11th hour. We should have dealt with that in our first 12 months of government. It's an important Mm. protection to afford Mm. people. Um, The PM, I think, was left terribly exposed by those who were in charge of drafting and bringing to Parliament and, of course, before that, through party room and the Cabinet, that legislation. It shouldn't have been left to the last six months of our term in Parliament Mm. to deal with because it is, by its very nature, sadly, a divisive debate, even though it shouldn't be. And, I mean, the PM consistently made this point towards the end when it was brought back to his desk from those he'd tasked with doing the job, that this is just another attribute we need to protect along with race, gender, sexual orientation. Those sorts of things all have protections. Mm. Why are we not doing it for people's faith in the workplace, et cetera? So without going through why it took so long or what went wrong and who's responsible, I don't think those are helpful discussions. The bottom line is we made a promise. We Mm. should have got our skates on, done Mm. the consultation, brought back a draft and gone through that yeah, process. Yeah, I think that's a very good months. point, particularly when you consider most people that are immigrating to Australia, a lot of them are fleeing religious persecution. Correct. Whether they be Maronite Catholic, mm. um, Orthodox, Muslim, the most persecuted peoples in the world are ironically Christian yes. throughout the world. Uh, okay, if I turn it around a little bit more and positively, what do you think... Um, are some of the things you would love to see in this next term? Mm. I mean, I know you're now in opposition, but what do you think are some of, well, both the threats and opportunities that Australia faces? Mm. Look, I think some of the biggest threats we face are 
things we the community don't see and okay. don't know are coming. And I always think of that an analogy of boiling the frog. Um, mm -hmm. You put the frog in the pot at mm -hmm. water room temperature and yep. it dies because it, it's not aware that it's... Uh, yeah, well, maybe another analogy is the iceberg. Yeah. The tip of the iceberg's visible, but there's a whole body mm. of ice under the water. What are you seeing as a politician that's coming over the hill which you think the public need to be aware of? Mm. And a lot of it was sort of contemplated in the last election campaign and that is around what risks are present out there beyond our borders, uh, okay. both in a, a geopolitical sense but also in an economic and fiscal sense. Yep. Um, because all of those things are a threat to our Australian way of life, be that the standard we have of living now as Australians. And this is one of these points that are very difficult to make because you can't go out there and say, uh, John Howard once made the point, Australians have never had it so good. And he was reminded of that forever and a day. And perhaps his phraseology was not the right mm. uh, form to choose because no matter how well a good majority might be doing, there are a portion of our community who are doing it tough. Sure. Look at the housing affordability stuff. Um, but, you know, when you look at things like low unemployment rates, et cetera, yeah. uh, things... Record economic growth. Correct, all of that. There's a bit of historical amnesia there for a lot of people, isn't there? Like mm. I can see why Howard's comment might be taken pejoratively and, and slammed, but if we look at it historically, it is accurate, isn't it? It, it is true. Australia's standard of living and... Uh, prosperity, uh, health. I've even just been reminded recently of the horrible shooting in America mm. um, and Joe Biden coming out so strongly that we need gun reform. And yet it was a conservative leader in Australia after Port Arthur here in Tasmania that led the way of gun reform. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to know your your reflections on that, on, on conservative government here in Australia and how... It's shaped values that would be very different, I would think, from the US. Yeah. Look, it, again, that comes down to some of the points we've made already about the community um, that we work for, okay. the people we serve and represent and how the zeitgeist out there in the community, the prevailing sentiment is. That does direct in a big way how government operates, how political parties um, deal with the issues that are confronting a nation. And it's hard to reform when there isn't urgent need and the community don't see the need. No one appreciates having dodged a bullet, generally speaking, if they yeah. don't know the bullet flew yeah. past them um, and they don't know the harm that might have been inflicted upon them. Yeah, good point. And so trying to convince people that tough reform in whatever area it might be is needed when their life is completely uninterrupted and it isn't on their radar, whatever the risk might be, be it looming economic crisis from somewhere else in the world coming to our shores soon or the geopolitical threat, you know. I mean, why would someone in one of our suburbs here in Hobart be too worried about the threat of another nation uh, slowly and strategically encroaching on our sovereign territory? Uh, and our neighbours with an aim in mind. Why would it be of concern to them? Why would it be one of the top ten things they thought about when they went to the ballot box last Saturday? And so it, these things have to be real and present in people's minds for reform to occur. And this is where politicians of conviction are needed. 
are politicians of conviction who have a capacity to articulate the need to follow through on whatever reform it might be. Um, all too often we are led by pollsters and uh, focus groups and uh, mm. those sorts of things. That's the nature of Australian politics in a sense, three-year parliamentary cycles um, or electoral cycles. Marginal seat holders have a very big say in uh, any government, Labor, Liberal, whatever colour it might take. Um, and, you know, that, that going back to this point around religious discrimination, that those marginal seat holders, four of whom have lost their seats now, one who hung on by a narrow margin, um, have a big say in party room because of the impact that going one way or another on an issue might have. Uh, and so this is where you have to be brave and you have to call things for what they are, like Howard did with gun reform. He was greeted with a huge amount of anger and animosity by the community who thought that he was taking away a huge yeah. thing from them in terms of their rights to own and use firearms. He was firearms. ahead of the curve in that sense, wasn't he, at that point? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Ahead and of the curve in terms of public opinion even. It, true, and, mm. and that's the thing. Having conviction, following through and being able to articulate what it is you're doing and why it's important, mm. you can then take the community on the journey with you. That's what he did so mm. often. Now, people often remark on Howard and... I didn't like him, but I respected him. Mm. That's what we need in politics. It's hard to come by, particularly in this world where, and back in Howard's day, we didn't mm. have social media the way we did. We didn't have the armchair commentators. We didn't have, I don't think, as politicised a media as we do now mm. that does dominate debate and often set that tone out there. This is what you, Australia, need to think is important. So let's hold our politicians to account, mm. say the fourth estate. And so that makes it harder than mm. it was to find that conviction and follow through, articulate what's important and drive reform. Okay, so let me ask you then a spicy question. Mm. I've um, read recently uh, I would describe as some very shrill Christian commentary that the uh, Liberal Party just has to go particularly of under the leadership of the last Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and that the Liberal Party under him, ironically, even though he himself was clearly a Christian leader, didn't reflect Christian values. I think you've seen some of this commentary yourself. How would you respond? Yeah, look, and I did read the piece you're referring to and um, it disappointed me greatly uh, to see such commentary because I mentioned earlier on that one of the most important things a Christian leader needs is a good support base um, and a good network of fellow believers to work with, draw upon, lean on, seek guidance from. Um, and that includes rebuking as well. Mm. Um, I'm a member of the government that article was aimed at removing. Uh, and I'm less worried about whether someone supports a particular political party or not. But I am worried when Christian brothers and sisters want to then go and use their Christianity to attack someone else under the guise of Christianity and say, in effect, that that person is not Christian. Particularly when, as I said before, one of the important things we need to do is support, guide, rebuke those who seek to lead in as Christians in our community. Um, Which ironically means they're not acting in a very Christian way themselves, are they? Well, it, it, that's that's yeah. right. And I suppose having read the article and the author is known to me, I sort of 
thought, oh, hang on, I've, this is the first I've heard of any concern around the issues raised in that article. It was a lengthy article and there were some important points made in there. I'm not going to dismiss it and say it was all politicised. There were some, I think, that were, um, you know, pretty poorly researched points and, you know, referring to the chaser for a list of broken promises or, or whatever they were, you know, is, isn't a reflection of a solidly written article. But the point is putting all of that aside, as a Christian, he has the opportunity to reach out to those who claim to be Christian and say, hang on a minute, I've got a list of concerns here. Can you please tell me why this happened, why you voted this way, why your government hasn't fixed this problem? And that's when we have to be held to account. That's where we can be rebuked. That's where someone who has a concern about things can actually come and say, well, you know, Jono, you say you're a Christian politician. Why did you do this? Now, I've made decisions yeah. in my time as a senator which I, which haven't accorded with my Christian faith and they're things I regret um, and they're things I'll always live with. And uh, But... Um, you know, there is that opportunity there and I would say to anyone who has any concerns about uh, the way a Christian politician might be voting, might be operating, that the policies of their party stand up, provide that support, guidance and um, rebuke if necessary um, because that's how you can actually make a difference yeah. in this society. Yeah, that really resonates with me personally because I know as a minister, a pastor, what I really appreciate is I don't always get it right even though I'm striving um, to preach God's word faithfully, I value the rebuke of God's people that come mm. and see me. What's hard is when they don't talk to you. Mm. But it reminds me too of the passage in 1 Timothy 2 that the Apostle Paul urges that of first importance that we pray for our leaders. Uh, I'm often rebuked that way myself that I, I need to pray more than I criticise. But what you're saying is, no, no, the door's always open. Please come and see us. We represent yeah. you, so talk to us. Tell us yeah. your concerns. Well, absolutely. And look, I, I've i always made it a, a bit of a you know, informal rule. I don't like going to church and being lobbied or harangued yeah. or anything like that. And um, at church, people are very respectful of that. Uh, but there's nothing stopping someone coming up and saying, hey, I need to talk to you on Monday. Can I make a time to talk to you about whatever the issue might be? And that is just so important and the the changes you might see come out of a discussion of that nature mm. could be huge. Mm. This is a point for Christians, not just when they have a concern about something that has happened that they're not happy with, but in terms of driving reform, be it on religious discrimination, be it on some other, you know, funding for religious schools. I don't know what the issue mm. might be um, of interest to people who want to come forward, but the squeaky wheel in politics often gets the oil. Yeah. And we only have to look at legislative reform in this country over the last 30 years, be it on same-sex marriage, um, on discrimination laws. Um, this is where we need to step up. Uh, politicians are not perfect. Mm. They are far from, just like every other person in society. And uh, I know you preached on it just a couple of weeks ago, this idea that... Well, if you're a Christian leader, you should be beyond reproach. We all should be beyond reproach. Like that, that's, but we know we're not. We know we're broken. We're sinners. We make mistakes. Um, but there is this bizarre expectation out there in the community, the Christian community, that because you're a member of parliament, a local government member, a senior staffer in the government, 
you're, you're perfect. Mm. King David wasn't perfect, yeah. you know, and we know what happened there. Yeah, you remind me of um, a speech that John Anderson gave at a Christian conference where he said any politician worth his salt, if somebody in his electorate would ring him up or email him and say, I want to meet with you, any politician worth his salt would drop everything to make that happen. Mm. Okay, let me ask you a, a difficult question um, mm. because it's been a difficult time for the Liberal Party, especially nationally. I think there's been something like, forgive me if I get this statistic wrong, but something like a 4% swing mm. against the coalition. You're one person. I know I'm sure the Liberal Party at the moment is reflecting on the loss. What went wrong in your opinion? Well, I think um, if we can contrast again, if we look back to the Howard days um, and probably the approach that was taken with regard to difficult issues like gun reform or employment relations, workplace relations reform and how the government said this is what we're going to do and they went and they did it. Um, Was it always an easy ride? No, but you followed through. And if we contrast in the case of religious discrimination um, or even the Integrity Commission issue, these things that sort of hung about for a three-year period and then suddenly in the last six months of a three-year period we bring them on for debate and we always knew they were going to be some of the most difficult for our party room, Mm -hmm. for our parliament and for the community. Um, And I, I don't seek to attribute blame here. There's a lot of things that fed into what in effect I believe was a calamitous approach to those issues. And so they're just a couple of examples of things that could have been handled better, in my view, earlier, more um, uh, decisively. This is what we're doing and off we're we're going to go and do it. Um, And uh, some people will like it, others won't. But Australians, for all the knocking of politicians and other leaders there might be, they respect someone who is decisive. Uh, They respect knowing where they stand with you. They might not like it. They might put you last on the ballot paper, but they respect you. Um, And I think that's something we need to remember. So I think a bit of that was lacking because of a range of things, COVID, uh, the geopolitical tensions, being able to handle things that there is no set playbook for meant that we as a government were trying to battle things, find our way in an unknown territory um, without the supports that we would normally have to deal with issues that a government would ordinarily confront. Also selling what it is we're doing is important Uh, and I don't think we did that. That's a basic thing in politics, being able to say, well, here's what we did, this is why we did it and this is how it has resulted, here's the impact on your life. Some of them were plain to see, the low unemployment rate coming out of COVID, uh, the fact that we have record low unemployment is Miraculous. It's amazing. Um, but that it, it didn't just happen. It mm. happened because of government policy. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened because of the programs that were put in place and designed. And so uh, the fact is we didn't sell that enough. Um, making what we do in Canberra and in our communities relevant to the ordinary man or woman, the voter out there, mm. is critically important and we didn't do it. Mm. Um, I wonder just on that. Have we as a society been lulled into a a false sense of security, you could say? Because like I remember growing up, interest rates were 18% Mm. uh, when I was a young boy and I remember the stress that put on my mum and dad who also ran a small business. Mm. Um, Have we just had it too good for too long? How many years of record or 
Uh, we're in a record period now of economic growth. Is it 20 odd mm. years? Yeah, yeah, in the mid 20s. Yeah, uh, I think it might be 24. Mm. Um, have we just had it too good for too long? Look, again, it's uh, an unwise politician who says that um, things are too good because our job is to make things better. better. No yeah. matter how good yeah. things are, we always want them to be better. Yeah. And I believe we can. But I think it is important to remind people that uh, of exactly what you've talked about so that we don't take things for granted. If you're born into a wealthy family, mm. you don't know what it's like to be poor. You don't know what sacrifice and hardship is. That's the truth of it. Now, I'm not suggesting that every Australian um, is equivalent to that person born into a wealthy family, sure. but yeah. we haven't had a war like we mm. did World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Vietnam exactly. Certainly can't forget that where we've had people conscripted and families mm. were torn apart, yep. lost dads, brothers, sons. Never to return. Um, we haven't had a Great Depression. We have had the GFC, but a lot of government support on the way through to yeah, ensure that that's right. the, the pain was buffered. We, and the same yeah. with COVID. Yep. So government has stepped in to people's mm. lives in a big way. And what I do worry about now is that there is an expectation out there, and this is, this is my real concern for the future, um, that whenever times are tough, government will save me. Um, and, and that does well, sort of desensitise Just on that, us. I can remember last year Mark McGowan, the Labor Party in Western Australia, encouraged everybody to write to him as their, for Father's Day nonetheless, as their state dad. Mm. There's a state paternalism that's growing. Has government become too big, do you think? Well, uh, look, I, I think a lot of what happened in COVID was necessary. If we were serious okay. about keeping the economy afloat mm -hmm. um, and the results are there, we have a functioning and indeed stronger economy than we did pre-COVID. Um, but it, what we do need to remind people of is that, well, you need to find ways to support yourself. And I always think about those families and what support was offered for uh, families affected by war in 1945. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a holus bolus support scheme from the government to pay people who'd lost their jobs because the factory closed down or because the farm they were on shut up shop. Um, what they did do, they provided support for uh, returned veterans and their families or widows and their families. Um, and there were some make work schemes there were no government handouts. There was no sort of cash handouts for businesses to keep them afloat. And so I contrast the level of support from, uh, what, 80 years ago to now. And that does show an increasing trend for a re reliance on government. Now, if we can do that in a way where people know that it isn't what is to be expected, that yeah. one day we might be confronted with something far worse that government can't shield us from, then we're okay. And people have to be ready to make a contribution, to stand up and find a way to survive in a world that could be very uncertain. And that could come from anywhere, in any shape, in any form, at any time. We don't know what's around the corner. We didn't know COVID was coming either. Mm. And we've emptied the coffers and borrowed huge amounts of money at taxpayers' expense to deal with COVID. What happens if something happens like that next year or the year after? Uh, there is an end to when government can do what it has been able to do uh, and that's where we as a society need to be prepared as individuals, as households, 
to do what we can to contribute to the greater good. That's an important part of the Australian way of life. That's what made us great through the 20th century. Our contributions to both the Great Wars um, mm. and other conflicts is an epitome of that and, and represents that Australian spirit. Okay, this has been a fascinating discussion and there's lots of other things I'd love to explore, but maybe I could just draw it to a close by asking you one final question mm. and that is if there's young people listening to this and they're like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, the reality is a lot more nuanced than I thought. There's particular challenges, opportunities. Uh, what would you say to the young person who's considering a career in politics? I'd say do it for the right reasons. Make sure that you understand what it is you actually want to do if it is public life you are interested in in some way. Mm. Now, it's always good to go and get a bit of experience somewhere as a plumber, as a teacher, as a lawyer, whatever it might be. But if you seriously are interested in public service, then you have to be committed to public service. That's what the job is. It's about serving. It's not about having power. It's not about just being a leader. It's about serving. That is what this is all about. My job here in Tasmania is to go out, understand what it is that the community need and then try and find a way if it is what I believe to be right, to do it um, within my values framework. So it is about service. It is about commitment to uh, to your community. There's sacrifice involved. Of course, there's rewards. These jobs are well paid. No one can deny that. But, you know, just last night, as I mentioned to you before we commenced this interview, I spent six hours driving to and from St Helens um, for a 45-minute meeting. Um, I could have been at home with my family like mm -hmm. most other dads, um, mm. but I was in the car. And so there is a lot that comes with it, but um, be prepared and committed to service and make sure, particularly as a young Christian, you have a solid foundation in the faith. Mm. Have a strong understanding of the word. Uh, I wish I'd had a stronger understanding when I started this job. I wish I'd had a stronger faith. I wish I'd had um, a stronger support network which is on me as well. I could have built that up. Mm. Having all of those things in place is critically important um, and I've learnt a lot along the way and God's protected me in many instances. So yeah. they're my words of advice. Okay, maybe on this note I'll end. Uh, it's a very famous passage in Micah 6, 8 and it simply says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, may God bless you in your role. It's great talking to you this morning. And um, I would say good luck, but I don't believe in that. Um, <laughs> I would say may God's gracious hand be upon you in the next three years and beyond as you serve Christ in the public square. Thank you very much for that. And look, uh, there's a lot that's going to happen over the next three yeah. years, but I appreciate your support and your guidance, yeah, Mark. Thank you. Well, this has been another episode of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. I hope that you found it as interesting as I have, and I look forward to seeing you next time. 